Let's turn to God's word. I invite you to take your Bible, however you have it, and go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. A couple of other things too. Uh, We have some sermon notes that we use week by week. You can find those on the app under the Sunday tab, or there's a hard copy version on that table that was just outside the auditorium doors as you were coming in. So you can have both of those uh, those handy as we work through John 10 verses 11 to 21. So we've, we've been in a study through the book of John for some time, and really what we're doing uh, last week, this week, and, uh, and this next week, so for kind of a three-week uh, little, little section here, we're, we're doing a mini-series through John chapter 10, and that, that's a really easy thing to do. It's really easy to stay focused for a series of weeks on this chapter because John chapter 10 is, is really dominated by one particular metaphor, one particular word picture, and, and that word picture is a shepherd with his sheep. A shepherd with his sheep. That's the illustration Jesus is using in John chapter 10 to help us understand who we are as his disciples and who he is as as our shepherd. And really, really this, this metaphor of shepherd and his sheep dominates the Bible. It's really, it's really found in a lot of places in the Bible. So we can, uh, we think about uh, Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. We can think about Isaiah 53, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on the suffering servant, on the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. We can think about Moses tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. Uh, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, does this for his soon-to-be father-in-law Laban after being kind of tricked. And then we think about David, of course, and, uh, and David, David is really being prepared for his kingly office uh, by being a shepherd and by having to protect his father and his, family's, and his family's sheep. And of course, we can think about the shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And so this image really dominates the Bible. And, and it's, again, it's here to help us understand who Jesus is, and who we are as his disciples, and how we ought to respond to that, and how that ought to shape the way we live, shape the way we think, and shape the way we follow him. And so, uh, just, and just another thing by way of introduction, since metaphors and illustrations are, are pictures, and, they're better, and, and sometimes they're better seen than they are read right here, um, I've got a, got a couple of pictures here. Let's go ahead and show those up there for me, guys. Thanks. So, I've just got a couple of pictures. I just want us to see this. So, you, you can still probably, hopefully even in the back, still make that out. It's a little further away when you put it on a screen than I thought, but you see the shepherd there in the middle? Can you see that? Just in the middle of everybody? So this is a, this is a picture I was able to take um, on, a, on a trip to go visit some of our missionaries that work in North Africa. And in this part of the world, there's a couple of really big cities, and then 90% of the population lives like this. And so this is a very common thing. And so I like this picture because I just, I remember seeing this, we were just walking along, ministering to a family in this particular village where there's just no, there's no gospel witness there. So it's, it was a pretty, pretty staggering thing. But um, that guy, he, I, I just said, I've got to take a picture of that. I like how he's in the middle of the sheep. See that? He's right there in the middle. Go and show that second one. This last, just, just another image here. So you see a young, a young boy here. He's got a staff there and he's behind the sheep, isn't he? just kind of pushing them forward. And so uh, these are really, that's the image we're wanting to have in our mind, a sheep with a shepherd. And so friends, uh, last week we considered Jesus as the true shepherd from verses one to 10. Next week we'll consider Jesus as the faithful shepherd through the rest of this chapter. And today we're gonna do what we can to learn that Jesus is the good shepherd that Jesus is the good shepherd. And we are learning this about Jesus not because we think him up to be this, but because this is how he is choosing to reveal himself. It's a dangerous thing to to make Jesus into an image that we prefer. That's idolatry. 
Biblical worship is receiving his word, accepting it as it is, and taking it for what it is. So the microphone is up to Jesus' mouth in the book of John, and we have the privilege of saying, tell us who you are. Tell us who you are. Would you please stand? Let's read this passage together. Please stand as you're able. Verses 11 to 21, and I do want us to read together, starting in verse 11, and we'll read down to verse 21 to consider Jesus as the good shepherd. So the words are there on the screen, and let's read together now, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we say yes and amen to everything we've heard in this service, that you are holy, that you are worthy, and now we want to do everything we can by your spirit with as much wisdom and discern and, and with, with much wisdom and discernment and conviction as possible to learn together what it means to trust you and to know you as the good shepherd. So I said that, so I ask, we ask together that you would give all the grace we need to apply this word to every single square inch of our life, because you are everything we have sung. You are raised from the dead. You are seated at God's right hand. You are worthy of all glory, and you are calling your sheep to yourself, one international flock that we call the church. And so, Lord, we are grateful to be a part of this, and we are grateful for your word. And so as you continue to build your church, would you use us and use us as you help us better know what it means to say, you are the good shepherd. And Jesus, we pray all these things on your authority and in your name, and everyone said together, amen, amen. Take your seats, friends. Thank you. Now, what I would like to do is to ask three questions to help us better understand what it means to say that Jesus is the good shepherd. They're on your notes there. Three questions to help us better understand what it means to say that Jesus is the good shepherd. Question number one, what does Jesus mean by good shepherd? 
What does Jesus mean by good shepherd? After claiming that he is the true shepherd in verses 1 to 10, who meets all expectations and provides for every need that his sheep would ever have, he now claims to be the good shepherd. He says this in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And then again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is making a claim that he is the good shepherd. Let's make no mistake, each time Jesus uses this particular construction, this I am construction, he does it seven times in John's gospel. And he's doing more than just starting a sentence by self-identifying himself in a certain way. He's, he's deliberately pulling a, a, a name used in the Old Testament by God himself to apply it to himself. He's saying, I am, I am God. He's saying it whether it be light or whether it be bread or whether it be water or here, whether it be a shepherd, whatever the image is, he's trying to say all that the Bible has said God is based upon this image, I am. And so he says, he says, he says you know that light that carried God's people through the wilderness, that was a fire by night and a cloud by day, that's me. And you know the water that was struck from the rock and that has always been symbolized as the way by which your deepest thirst is quenched? I'm that water. That's what he's saying. And he's doing the same thing here with the good shepherd. Now, in both places, in verse 11 and verse 14, the adjective is what is emphasized. The adjective is emphasized. So it's Jesus is trying to draw our attention to the kind of shepherd that he is. To the kind of shepherd that he is. That's where he's choosing to draw our attention. So in both phrases, the the literal Greek construction in the original would be, I am the shepherd the good one. That's how it reads. I am the shepherd, the good one. So I'm not, he's trying to say, I'm not just any shepherd. I'm not like any other shepherds you've ever met. He's drawing attention to the kind of shepherd that he is. Now, when he says good shepherd, well, that could, you know, good, good could mean anything. Does it mean, does it mean that he's good at something? Well, that, well, that's certainly true because Jesus is good at everything. Jesus does nothing poorly. He does everything well. It could mean that he's good morally, that he, that, he, that he has goodness within him, that he carries the characteristic of goodness. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, Jesus is goodness itself because he is God. But, but a better translation, there's two, there's two words used in the original New Testament for good. This is, this is one of them. And, and, and I think a really helpful translation is something like noble or excellent. It, it, it carries the idea of nobility or of excellent. Jesus means that he is of a certain character. Sometimes the word is tr- even translated beautiful, but noble and excellent is good. Jesus is telling us, he's telling them right then, and he's telling us now that he is the perfect, authentic shepherd, preeminent above all others, in a class all by himself. Jesus is saying, there's only one shepherd like me. I am better than Moses, I'm better than Jacob, I'm better than all of them. Lots of people have been shepherds, no one's been the good shepherd. And let's be reminded of the truth that John is consistently trying to tell us in this book that Jesus is unique and singular, that the best words we have to describe our king are words like preeminent, Singular, supreme, unique, all by himself, no rivals, no one like him. 
That's the best way to think of Jesus. He is your best thought by day or by night. And the best thought is he's better. I've never had a thought worthy of him. Ever. Because he is that high. He's that elevated. He's that lofty. That's who the risen Jesus is. He's the the shepherd, the excellent one. The Moses wasn't like this. David's not like this. Jacob's not like this. Jesus is like this. And he's wanting to help us understand that. Brothers and sisters, let's never grow weary of being reminded that there is no one like Jesus. Have you heard too much that Jesus is unique? No, I haven't. I haven't heard it enough. I need to hear it again. I need to gather again with you, with God's people, and hear again, there's no one like Jesus. We we never need to grow weary of reminding each other in our community groups, in our student ministry small groups, in our kids' classes, in our personal discipling relationships, in coffee with a non-Christian friend, at dinner, moms and dads with our kids. There's no one like Christ. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. That's who he is. Give him glory. For that is who he is. He is the good shepherd. This is his claim. And at the, end of this, at the end of this text, John is going to ask us, who do you say he is? That's how it's going to end. It's going to end with two questions in verses 19 to 21. We read it just a minute ago. Who is he? Who is he? I think he ends that way on purpose. Second question. Second question. If he's the good shepherd, well, it would be helpful if he gave us reasons. And I think he does that. Number two, what makes Jesus the good shepherd? What makes Jesus the good shepherd? So I think in this passage, Jesus gives proofs to tell us who he is. Now, one of the interesting things about this, remember, we're in a metaphor in John 10. We're in a word picture, shepherd and sheep. A very real life illustration for people then and for people around the world today. A lot of people, this is how they make their living. The two, the young boy and the man I showed you there, this is not, it's not an uncommon thing. We live in a very industrialized area by God's grace, a lot of blessings to that, but this is still a very common thing. One of the things Jesus does is he introduces characters in this illustration. So here's what he does. He's already introduced a thief and a robber in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So he introduces a couple of other characters. In verses 12 and 13, he introduces another one. It's called the hireling. Or in your Bible, it may say the hired man. Now, I, Jesus doesn't tell us here if he is explicitly, me, if, if what he means is these characters are direct representations of someone out in the real world. He doesn't say that, but since if you just look down at your Bible, you look at verse 41, and then you just kind of move your eyes down to verse 10. Remember, the, the, the chapter and verses aren't part of the original, so, so it's kind of easy. Just imagine Jesus is talking in verse 31, verse 41, John chapter 10, verse 1, he's still talking. So same conversations happening even though we have a chapter break in our English Bibles, okay? So I tend to think the thief and the robber and the hireling are probably Jesus poking fun at the Pharisees that have been in conflict with him since he healed the blind man in chapter 10. That's what I think. Um, Jesus, Jesus does this a lot. They're kind of standing right in front of him and instead of uh, it can, it, it, using a rhetorical device, he uses a story and they're like, oh, I think he's talking about me. You know. So I think that's what he's doing here. He introduces the hireling in verse 12. These are characters, and they're intended to be a contrast to himself. Let's look at verse 12. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, now verse 12. But a hireling, or a hired man, he who is not, he, 
He who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Now, let's give three reasons from this illustration why Jesus is the good shepherd. Reason number one, because he owns the sheep. Because he owns the sheep. Again, this hireling that Jesus introduces is a renter, not an owner. When, we, uh, when, when our family first moved to Des Moines a few years ago, we rented a, a townhouse um, over in Ankeny just, to, just for the first year, just to get ourselves settled and get to know the area and, 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 and things like that. And if you've, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you may be now, some, most of us probably have been at some point, where you're, where you're renting where you live versus, versus owning, even with a mortgage where you live, you, just, you immediately know there's a vast difference in commitment and in investment from a property that you're living in that's being rented by you and a property that you own, that you're, paying, that you're making payments on. You know, you, uh, if, if, if something goes wrong at the rented house, you, you, call up, you call up the owner, right? You call up the old landlord and my air conditioner went out and it's July and it's really hot. We need to do something about this. You probably won't even call the, the service man to come out and fix it, much less write a check, right? So the level of investment and commitment is different. It's the same thing here. This hired man has very little investment and very little commitment with the sheep. And what's being described in verse 12 is a very real scenario, a pack of hungry wolves coming to get a meal from a flock of sheep. That was not uncommon. And so what you have is someone who is self-interested, someone who is selfish. And so, and so by contrast, if the hired man is a renter and not an owner, Jesus is an owner, not a renter. The hireling is not committed. He's just what a renter ought to be. And again, the situation is very real. The effect is terrible. The wolf catches the sheep because they're in the worst case scenario for a shepherd or for, or for sheep. They're unprotected and they're defenseless and he scatters them. So it's the worst scenario for sheep to be in and he doesn't own the sheep and by implication, Jesus does. Jesus is the owner of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice and they follow him. We see this in verse three. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. That's amazing. He knows your name. And he says it. More on that in just a minute. And he brings them out. They follow him again in verse 27 of this chapter. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus owns the sheep. Again, verse 12. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep. My friend, if you are believing in Christ, if you have trusted in him, he has bought you. You belong to him. He has redeemed you by his precious blood. And when danger comes, he will not flee because he's an owner. And you, we must, as disciples of Jesus, be reminded and to preach to ourselves, to have the discipline to remind ourselves as often as, as we can that it is not what is finally decisive for you and for me is not who we are, but whose we are. Tell yourself who you belong to. The universe is in his hand. We're going to be fine. Now, where do you get, tell me, what little arena of this fallen world gives you that assurance? There isn't one. There isn't one. Jesus promises this. He owns you. He, when the wolf comes, he doesn't run. 
He does even more than that. We'll see more on that in just a second. He owns them. Second reason, Jesus is the good shepherd. He has a heart for the sheep. The hireling does not. Now, if verse 12 is a real-life scenario, verse 13 is Jesus explaining the motives that give way to the hired man's actions. The motives that give way to the hired man's actions. Verse 13, the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says in verse 14, and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. The hireling, not being an owner, not being all that invested, has little emotional and practical concern for the sheep, very little. He has little compassion for them. That's what the illustration is saying. You see it right there in verse 14, does not care about the sheep. He is, the moment, the moment he's in danger, he's out. And we see that Jesus is, again, the total opposite. The point of verses 14 and 15 is to heighten the knowledge and the care and the concern that Jesus has for his own. He cares for the sheep. This is the Jesus who in Matthew 9 looks out on the crowds and is broken because they are helpless and harassed like a sheep without a shepherd. He can't, it makes him burst with emotion and with compassion. He feels it deep in who he is. It's just what comes out of him most naturally is love and care for the sheep. And he says in verse four that he knows them by name. He brings out his own sheep. Excuse me, verse three. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. He knows our, guys, he knows our names. And he says, come. Christianity means a lot of things. But it doesn't mean anything less then personal salvation, personal care, personal concern, personal guidance, personal love, personal compassion for you. This is one of two little, little, uh, little kind of uh, roads I'll make to Easter, uh, get us ready for the next couple of weeks. There's so many characters involved in the Easter story as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, there's one moment where Jesus, Jesus is alive and his disciples that are there, it, it seems like they're in some kind of garden. Um, or at least the tomb where Jesus was laid was thought of as a garden because Mary is there and she doesn't know that it's Jesus talking to her. She mistakes him for the gardener, which is interesting. We've gone back to the garden. Isn't that interesting? Here's life again. Now we're back in the garden. See, there's a man and a woman in a garden. And so Mary, Mary doesn't know it's Jesus. And Jesus looks at, Mary, looks at her and says, Mary, Mary. That's what he does for every single one of us. He says your name. He knows it and he says it. It's that personal. It's that, if it weren't in the Bible, I'm not sure you could say it, but he knows our names. He has a heart for the sheep. Jesus' intimate knowledge of and concern for each sheep is emphasized in verses 14 and 15. You see in those verses the word know used four times. Know in verses 14 and 15. Now, know in the Bible is more than um, a possession of facts about something. So, if I were to say, I know, uh, I know George Washington, well, I'd have to explain what I mean because I could, I could know him in the sense of having some facts about him, but I don't, but I don't have a relationship with him. He's not alive. So, so this, this knowing is more like the other one. It, it, it's experiential. 
It's, it, it's, it's more than bare facts. It's love and loyalty and deep concern. It's used, it's used for the relationship between a husband and a wife in the Bible. And so in the same way that the father and the son, verse 15, possess intimate knowledge of each other more than bare facts, even so, in this, in this relationship of love and devotion, so Jesus and his sheep have this same kind of relationship. One is patterned after the other. And so Jesus has a heart for the sheep. He has a heart for you. He knows you personally, and he says your name. Third reason, Jesus is the good shepherd, and we were prepared to consider this in, in communion, but here it is. He sacrifices himself for the sheep. He sacrifices himself for the sheep. Now, Jesus makes this statement four times in this passage. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We see again in verse 15, as the father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in verses 17 and 18, I want you to notice what Jesus says. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Now, let's, let's think about this for just a second. Thieves and robbers come to steal and to kill the sheep. The hireling is a renter, not an owner. He's very self-interested. The sheep are only a job. And at the first sign of danger, he bounces. But the good shepherd, the true shepherd, the faithful shepherd, is willing to give everything for the sheep, including his own life. Now, were this shepherd to do this, stay stay in the illustration, were the shepherd to do this, to look at the oncoming danger of ravenous wolves, a very real danger, were the shepherd to look at them and do the opposite of the hired man. The hired man flees. Were the shepherd to step in front of the danger and say, not them, but me. Me instead of them. That's what this shepherd does. He sees danger coming. The hireling says, not me, them. This shepherd says, me, not them. Were that shepherd to do this in this illustration and it really happened, you have a dead shepherd lying on the ground, mauled by wolves, where does that leave the sheep? In a very vulnerable position, defenseless and unprotected. But this isn't any other shepherd. So here's what verses 17 and 18 are designed to do. Allow the metaphor to give way to reality. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So he's not using the shepherd illustration anymore. Now he's saying, look at me. I'm talking about me. This is something I will do. If you were confused before, be so no longer. No one takes it from me, verse 18. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. So the story with this shepherd as the metaphor gives way to reality does not end 
with a mangled shepherd lying dead among wolves and a sheep scattered, thirsting, and starving in the desert. That would be any other shepherd. But this is the good shepherd. This is the excellent shepherd. This is the noble shepherd. This is the shepherd who is one of a kind. This shepherd is on a particular mission. He has been given particular kinds of instructions and he has been given all authority he needs to carry it out to completion. This shepherd would not leave his sheep defenseless and scattered. Jesus has left behind the word picture and he's talking directly about himself. He is talking about his death and his resurrection. And he wants us to understand that when he dies on the cross, in our place, for our sins, taking our penalty, removing God's wrath, his life is not being taken It's being given. His life is not being taken as if he were a helpless victim of unfortunate and unforeseen circumstances. It's the opposite. He is a sovereign, crucified savior. I lay it down. Who's taken anything from me, Jesus says? I give it. Isn't that glorious? Don't you want to worship this man? Give him glory, (laughs) and I'll take it back up. When it says command and authority, the Father told me to do it, and he gives me all freedom to do it. Authority is like freedom, power. I got everything I possess to make this happen. No No one has taken anything from me, he says. That's why he does it. His life is given so that he can take it up. So that he can take it up. Jesus died with a purpose. He gave his life freely and willingly in order to take it up again so that he can rise from the dead and walk out of the grave. Here's my second reference to the Easter story. There's all sorts of characters involved in the Easter story because we're reading a narrative. There's the men who are conspiring to put Jesus to death and then, uh, and then there's all this, all this play after Jesus rises from the dead. So Jesus is dead in the story. Now, we've got kind of, we're, um, we're the omniscient readers, so we kind of know what's happening. But there's, I, I love this scene. It's, it's recorded best in Matthew. In Matthew 27, Joseph of Arimathea, who's kind of a secret disciple, uh, we meet him in John's gospel. He's kind of a secret disciple, but then he kind of puts his cards out on the table because he goes to Pilate and he says, can I have the body of Jesus? Because he's going to give Jesus his tomb. Okay, his really nice tomb. He's going to let Jesus be buried there because Jesus had nowhere to lay his head in life or in death. And so he gives it to Joseph of Arimathea, takes the body. The Pharisees, having heard that Jesus was dead and was going to be buried, go to Pilate, who oversaw the execution, and say, hey, um, this deceiver said that he would rise from the dead. We don't believe that's going to happen, so here's, here's our theory. Our theory is that those 12 men, or however many, are going to go and steal away the body, right? Because the way to disprove the resurrection is to show a body, that's all you, where, where is he? Oh, he's in heaven, right? Because he rose from the dead. Like, you, that's, that's the best way to discredit it. And so, inst- along with rolling a big stone in front of it, a stone that would have taken uh, quite a few men to, to move, can we set a guard over the tomb so that, so that if these jokers come in the middle of the night and try to steal away this body, somebody's going to be there and we'll be able to discredit this. And I just love this scene because here's what happens. Pilate says to the Pharisees, you've got your own guards, Set them up, let them be up there as, you know, do whatever you need to do. And then you have this, probably the most ironic but powerful line in the Bible regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Pilate, from the mouth of Pilate, he says more than he knew. Pilate looks at these Pharisees who want to set a guard over the tomb. He says, make it as secure as possible. And we're over here reading this story thinking, good luck with that. Make it as secure as possible. You, 
you could put a legion of guards outside of this tomb. Nothing is stopping this man from taking his life up again. Bury him 10 tombs deep. He's taken it back up again. It is impossible for him to be held by death. Friends, this is the gospel that Jesus Christ is a crucified Christ so that he could be a resurrected Christ. That's who he is. And nothing was going to stop this man from bringing his heart back to life on that. Nothing was going to stop him. Make it as secure as you want. Famous last words. Because that thing rolled away and he walked out. And he is that way today. That is who Jesus is. He received this command from his father and we know this is the good news. And so here's the third question we need to ask. What is my response to these things? What is my response to these things? Look at, let's look at verses 19 and 21. I want you to see how John ends. He says, therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, verse 20, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, you'll notice that it seems like John is really trying to kind of cap off this moment, I think. Because you look at verse 22, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. So we've kind of skipped ahead. I think John wants us reading this for, as it's recorded to say, who do I say that he is? We've got two questions, one in verse 20, he has a demon and is mad, so is he, is he demon-possessed? Look, this just tells us that the kind of things Jesus is saying, guys, we just can't ignore them. Just, I, I would just implore you, just don't ignore Jesus. You can't ignore a guy who says things like this. Look, anyone in this room can say, I have the authority to lay my life down again. Fine. Who can say, I'm going to take it back up again? You can't, who talks like that? You can do whatever, you know, do whatever you want to with your life, but rise again? <laughs> I think this guy's got a demon. <laughs> like that's not, maybe that's not a stretch. Maybe he's out of his mind. Or maybe he's exactly who he says he is. And he is the sovereign savior who was crucified and was raised. What is your, what is my response to these things? I, I, I think there's three responses we can give. I want to go through them, and then I'm going to pray on the basis of them, and then we'll be finished. Maybe our response to these things is the same as they've been for years. Jesus is my Lord and my God. Maybe, whether we've been believing it for three months or for 30 years, we believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. If that's you, if you are presently trusting in Christ and have been doing so again for three months or for 30 years, I would encourage you to continue just as you began. Continue as you began. Whether 30 years ago or three months ago, you started with complete dependence on Jesus, didn't you? In some way, you voiced that apart from Jesus Christ, you are hopeless, you are helpless, and you have nothing. But with him, you have everything. Well, that's been a winning strategy. Let's stick at it. Let's stick at remembering that apart from him, we have nothing. In the thousand ways, we need to remember that today. We need to remember, trust, I want to encourage you to follow the shepherd again, to follow him more, to follow him further until you reach your heavenly home because you will. His rod and his staff, they will comfort you. He will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You will. Heaven is your home. You will be in his house forever. Follow him. Trust in him with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. 
And he'll make it straight, straight where? To his house forever. Now, I don't know all the ups and downs you're gonna have to go to get there, but I just know it trends like this. Stay with him. Once saved, forever following. Another response could be stated unbelief, solid in unbelief. It can be voiced in all sorts of ways. I'm not convinced. Man, I, man, this, this guy, man, there's some really, these guys are real serious about this. I'm not really sure if any of this happened. There's a range of ways unbelief can be expressed. I would just encourage you, if that's you and you feel firm and solid in, in unbelief, you're, you self-consciously understand yourself to not be trusting in Christ, I am so thankful you are here. You are here any day, any time the doors of this church are open. Continue to come and to listen about Jesus. And I want to encourage you, doubt your doubts. Doubt all the reasons you think this may not be true. And self-consciously assess, who talks like this? And who gives their life for, for something that, that isn't true? All those men that the Pharisees thought were going to steal the body away, they didn't. Jesus rose from the dead, dead. And look, they all died for it. Every one of them died for it. That's quite commitment if it didn't happen. A third response could be this. I'm not sure I've crossed from unbelief to belief in Jesus, but I think he could be drawing me. To you, I would say, if you are hearing his voice, believe him. Believe him now. Trust in Christ. What's stopping you? The promise of tomorrow? Remove the word promise. I don't have it and you don't have it, as far as we know. If this is you, come to him. Today, if you hear his voice, if he is saying your name to leave your sin and to receive his mercy and grace through the cross and resurrection, then do it. I'll be right here at the end of the service. There'll be some others with me. We'd love to pray for you and help you do this. Do not leave today without hearing his voice. Now, what I want to do is offer up a prayer over us. I'm going to pray along these lines. But, but I want to pray. I want you to pray with me. But, but I want to pray with no doubt in my mind. With no doubt in my mind and heart about who Jesus is. Because I believe, and this church believes, and its membership believes, that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. That he is the good, sovereign Savior. And with personal love and personal affection, he looked at the dangers of sin and judgment do that sin. Look, no danger in your life compares to the the danger of unforgiven sin. Not a single one. He looked at the dangers of sin and judgment. He saw those wolves coming at you and me. He stepped in and he said, me instead. He did that for you. Not them, me. And he died and he took it back up again. So that you and I, by trusting in him, can die and take it back up again with new life in him. This is the gospel. Let me read for you, before I pray, Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Just listen. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And to that, we say amen, and let's bow in the name of this Jesus. Let's pray together, friends. Lord Jesus, you're so good to give us your word to tell us who you are. We believe these things about you because your word tells us they are true. And we as a church and as Christians believe that what the Bible says, God says. And so we proclaim and we announce you are the sovereign savior who laid it down and took it back up. And you are all of these things now, right now. This is who you are. You died and you tore a hole back through death by taking it back up again and you have forever put a throne in the graveyard. You've put a throne in the tomb and you said, I'm Lord of this. I am the excellent shepherd. I am the noble shepherd. Whoever hears my voice, come, come. And so Lord, our responses may be varied. I pray, I pray that if we are believing, we would continue just as we started in utter dependence on you. I pray that if we were in our settled unbelief, that you would change that right now by your spirit and, and, or at least convince us to doubt the reasons we doubt these things. And Lord, if you are drawing us, I pray that we would respond. Our feet would move, we would ask to talk to someone and we would just begin to think about what it means to follow Jesus as the good shepherd. You are the chief shepherd, the noble shepherd, the excellent shepherd. You will lead us where we need to go, and we trust you to do so. And so, Jesus, we give all glory to you, all thanks to you, all praise to you. And, and we're going to leave in just a minute. We're going to go get lunch, or we're going to interact with each other in our seats for a minute. Lord, may, the, may, may, may these messages be ringing in our ears concerning who you are. In Jesus, we pray these things in your great name and everyone said together. Amen, Amen, friends. Amen.